This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. What were you doing on August the 27th? It's a tough question. Well, what was that, a Saturday? Was it Saturday? Was it, were there fireworks? Was, it, was I supposed to be somewhere? Did I forget to go? No, no, none of those things. August the 27th was a Thursday, and if you'll remember, just after 3 p.m., this line of storms came through the area, and they were nasty. Some people had pictures of clouds, and it almost looked like close encounters of the third kind or Independence Day, as depending on kind of what movie you first associate with, they were, they were wild. But one of the wildest moments was actually experienced by, well, the father of our next guest, as our next guest was on his way home. Because a tornado, as the Northern Tornadoes Project has since proven, touched down on their land. Please welcome to London Live, Bob Breer. Bob, thanks so much for taking some time for us. Uh, No problem. You weren't home at the time, but your dad was, and your dad is how old? Dad to be 101 in November. And, That's incredible. Uh, it is. And, and so and myself, he's at home, the storms are coming, and where were you at the time? I had gone over to uh, uh, Hyde Park Equipment there on Scotland Drive, and uh, like on my way over, the thunderheads were starting to build a little bit, but nothing drastic. And as you described there in your lead, by the time I got my business done there and, and, and left there, like oh, things were getting, you know, really nasty in the London area. So I had thought, well, maybe I better head on home and, uh, you know, I headed on back. And and I guess it would probably be 20 minutes while well, my neighbors text me and they'd known I'd gone over and he said, you on your way home? And I said, yeah, I'll be there in about 20 minutes. And, uh, he said, well, you're in for a real surprise when you get home. He says, most of your buildings, have, you know, have damage. He says, several trees gone down. So I just, you know, hightailed it home, and I couldn't believe the damage, you know, and everything had been done. Oh, man. And how was your dad? Oh, <laughs> well, he, you know, someone his age, he's still, still got the brains working fantastic, but he didn't really, he's pretty near blind and he didn't really realize you know anything had happened other than you know a, a thunderstorm and uh, i took him outside and i said now you take a look around and see tell me what you can see and he said well, i don't really see anything and it missed the house there were two big uh walnut trees right by the house probably 15 feet away took one out by the roots and the other one it just uh, disintegrated it and never never moved a thing on the house or my house right next door. But the barn's right close to mine, and it took part of the roof off the barn. Another shed, probably 50 feet to the east, it shifted it right completely off the foundation, and I don't think we'll be able to you know, do any uh, repairs to it. It's basically salvaged now. And another barn beyond that, big implement shed, it took the east end doors off of that, went out across the bean field, and over to my neighbor's, probably... 200 yards away and knocked several great big pine trees down and never never done any damage to his house either so it stayed away from the houses but it sounds like pretty extensive damage was done have you you had a damage estimate since i mean this sounds like thousands and thousands 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's going to be well up there. The insurance, we're just waiting for the okay from the insurance company now, and uh, they're going to have contractors come in and uh, repair everything. And But, uh, you know, I guess we're, in one way, we're lucky. There's no, you know, personal uh, injuries, and, you know, both houses are still okay, so... But there, there was debris scattered all over the yard, like four by four rafters from the big barn, and steel sheets. Like anybody's been out there in the open when it hit, they've they've been gone. There's been no nothing, nothing left. Like it, it just tore in. Even the clothesline, and it was in the direct path of where it went across. It took the clothesline posts out too. <laughs> took the posts out. And did you yep. ever salvage them? Did you find them? Oh yeah, yeah. They were laying out across the yard, about a hundred yards away. Oh. We're talking with Bob Breer, whose farm was hit by a tornado on August the 27th, as his dad was at home. Unfortunately, it didn't injure anyone or touch any of the houses, but there is pretty extensive damage and crop loss. But at the same time, Bob, since that happened, and you would think, okay, well, you know, the storm comes and goes, you get on the phone with the insurance company, but you've had visitors that have not exactly been insurance adjusters. What have you seen in the weeks that have passed since the tornado arrived? Well, the first 48 hours, I've never seen so many vehicles, you know, coming along and stopping, taking pictures, and, you know, just to see see what the damage was. And even right up, well, every day there's, you know, maybe two or three now at the most. But yesterday there was, I think I counted five that stopped. And, you know, they back up and they were taking pictures of the trees because we were just nicely getting started cutting them up. And it, it's going to be a process for, because I'm going to have to do my son and son-in-law and myself, what we're going to do the cleanup. It's going to probably be a couple more weeks before we get the trees all cut up and that. And, and once the contractors get here to, you know, do all the barn repairs, and then, you know, we'll, we'll be ready for the next one. Hopefully it never comes. <laughs> Hopefully it doesn't. But here you are trying to clean up the yard, and we've heard of storm chasers that like to get pictures of a tornado as it's happening or a big storm as it's happening. Mm-hmm. Now you've got storm aftermath chasers, people actually coming to photograph what it looks like where a tornado hit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm really amazed, you know, how much... You know, they, they've they been, you know, very inquisitive, I guess, just to see, you know, what, what they do. And when the UWO come over, like, they just took one look, and they, they said, you know, right off the bat, it definitely was a tornado, but we'll have to uh, assess, you know, the damage and everything. And then that's when they come out with the EF-1. That is incredible. And does anyone get out of their vehicle to come and try and talk to you, or is it basically they come, they take a look, especially on a holiday Monday, and then they turn and go? Yeah, most of them just, you know, turn around the driveway, or if they're just driving, you know, completely by, they just stop and take pictures and that, and then away they go. And But on the Thursday afternoon, like after it happened, uh, uh, CTV London News, they were here, and then... Uh, uh, the next morning, the adjusters and everything, then uh, UWO, their, their people was here assessing it and all that kind of thing. But it, it, it was quite quite the thing there on Thursday afternoon. You'll be able to set up a tourist attraction site. You, you could sell memorabilia. As <laughs> I said to my, my one neighbor, I should have had Tim Horton's coffee and donuts or something. I could have made some money. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Bob, again, it's great to know that everybody is okay, and and I know there's a lot of damage and a lot of cleanup still to come, but here's hoping it, it turns out and things get back uh, to where they used to be, or, or who knows, maybe even shinier and newer. 
that's true. That's true. Yep. The main thing, no one got hurt, and both our houses are okay. The barns, you know, all that kind of stuff can be repaired or replaced, whatever. And and I, I guess that's the main thing. And if you really want to see some fantastic pictures, my son Chad has uh, probably got a hundred of them there that are really super. Well, that's that's. I'll find uh, Chad lives right near me, so you know what? I'll uh, I'll see if he'll let me post a couple on Instagram oh, yeah. or Twitter oh. a little later on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He'll he'll do that. No problem at all. Well, Bob, it's great to hear that you're okay. Please say hi to your dad for us and keep safe through all of this. We we will, and I appreciate your call. Take care. Yep. You bet. Thank you. That's Bob Breer. Bob owns a farm. Hit by a tornado on August the 27th, and it's now become a tourist attraction. Here we are. How long has it been since the 27th of August? It's now almost two weeks. It'll be two weeks Thursday. And people are still coming out and taking pictures of the damage. Hey, this is where a tornado hit. And as much as we've got the Northern Tornadoes Project that is now mapping all of these tornadoes that touch down, it does seem, and we've asked them this question, it's not a hugely significant number, but we are seeing a number of tornadoes, perhaps even, depending on how the rest of the season goes, more than you normally would. Now, fortunately, not F4 or F5, but just ask Bob. They don't have to be F4 or F5 in order to do significant damage. I think we told the story if I didn't, then I want to tell it quickly now. But there was that story in, in Tallahassee where I think it was an F4 or an F5 tornado uh, touchdown. And you had a student who actually was looking for shelter. She couldn't find any. And she was in the downtown area. And all of a sudden, she turns a corner. And the tornado is essentially coming down the street. And all she could do was jump into a doorway as it went by. It blew the jewels out of her earrings. So the earrings stayed in her ears. But whatever little jewel there was, the tornado blew those out. Took the shoes that were tied off her feet. But other than that, she wasn't harmed. Tornadoes do very, very strange things sometimes. Sometimes complete devastation and sometimes even death. But... You heard Bob say this one kind of deked away from the houses, hit a lot of other things, but didn't hit any houses. And then you hear the story of somebody surviving being through a tornado where it blows the jewels out of their earrings, blows the shoes off their feet. But otherwise, other than you know, a few cuts and scrapes, they're okay. Yesterday was World Duchenne Awareness Day, and Jesse's journey was a big part of all of the events taking place. One of the events that was taking place happened locally and summed up what one day in the life of John Davidson was like when he walked across the country, basically doing 33 kilometers a day. And you think of some of those walks around the province where John was pushing Jesse in his wheelchair. Perry Essler is the executive director at Jesse's Journey and walked 33 kilometers yesterday, likely into the wind at least part of the time. Perry, what was that like? Good afternoon, Mike. Well, you know what? It was uh, it was probably better than I thought, although that said, um, the aches and pains and the blisters are still healing today. So 
Um, no, we, we, I was a little worried, you know, hearing the thunderstorms early yesterday morning, but that cleared. Uh, the rain in the afternoon came after we finished, so we got lucky enough to do it through, uh, through reasonable weather conditions. And, uh, you know, it wasn't super hot like we had done it sometimes in the summer in, in our training, but it's a, it is a long way. And it's, um, it's rather remarkable to think that, um, you know, I didn't have to worry about getting up to do it again today. Um, and 25 years ago, not only did John get up to do it the next day he did it 124 days and he was pushing jesse all at the same time um, up some large hills and into some very very, um, you know horrible weather conditions as well well it was remarkable to witness what he did then and then to essentially do the same thing solo going across the country you mentioned getting up with the the blisters and and the sore legs and and that (laughs) sort of thing how was the walk itself was there a point at which you went are we almost finished yet yeah, that's that really started in about the last 45 minutes. I, I could feel some um, blisters coming on the bottom of my left foot, and uh, but you know, overall, it was a great experience. We we really enjoyed it. My wife and I did it together, and uh, some family came out, and some friends came out at different times as well. Um, we walked, you know, from Ivy Park West through uh, Wonderland Garden, Storybook, Springbank Park, did that big loop, and and we did it twice, and and it was uh, it was great. It was a nice way to um, for us at least as an organization to honor the uh, the founders John and Jesse, and it and I wasn't alone. There were uh, many other people across in different places across Canada that did it as well, um, most of them being uh, Duchenne families and, and wanting to join in the cause. So it was, it was really all around, it was, a, it was a great community engagement activity for the Duchenne community in Canada. Well, everybody's having to get creative with the way that things are happening. Mm-hmm. This was incredibly creative. It involved a lot of people, and it raised money, and that's the absolute key. We'll look forward to more great announcements coming in the next little while on a battle against Duchenne. Perry, thanks so much for the time. Thanks for what you did. Now get back to resting those legs. <laughs> thanks, Mike. Appreciate you having us. That's Perry Esler. We are in a time when it's possible to look around and say, okay, how are we doing things? Can we change anything? Can we fix anything? Can we do it better? And that's going on all over the place. And the City of London, no exception. And a story came out toward the end of last month that dealt with advisory committees because there are 13 advisory committees in the City of London. For example, and we hear from them from time to time, the Advisory Committee on Heritage, The Cycling Advisory Committee, those are two that have certainly been in the news over the last year. Housing Advisory Committee, you're getting the idea. Animal Welfare, Accessibility, Transportation, Trees and Forests, Child Care, so Diversity, Inclusion, and Anti-Oppression. You you get the picture of the fact that all of these things are instrumental in making a city work to the best of its ability. The question was posed. Are we getting enough information from them? We talked with Ward 6 Councillor Phil Squire about this and the idea that is it time to look and say, okay, maybe we combine a couple of these, maybe we do away with some of them, just to give that review. So that was one angle that we looked at. What we're able to do right now on London Live is get a sense from someone who has paid very close attention to what these advisory committees are contributing and has some real genuine thoughts on 
how things should proceed going forward. Please welcome to London Live, Darcy Lacey, who is the Director of Equity, Inclusion, and Governance at Pillar Nonprofit. Darcy, thanks so much for being here. Well, thank you for asking me. Well, let's talk a little bit about the 13 advisory committees. We won't break them down one by one, but at the same time, when you look at the areas that they cover, how do you feel about the necessity of having these advisory committees continue in the way that they exist now? Well, I think, um, uh, well, first and foremost, I, I'd like to say I'd like to see the advisory committee stay. Uh, we were not sort of saying that, uh, my, my perspective is not that there couldn't be things that could be done uh, to the existing process to make them more effective in terms of advising the city. But I do see the value of having advisory committees um, and I don't see any challenges or concerns around the number that we have uh, for the citizen engagement that's needed, I think, for the city to make decisions. In terms of what you would like to see in getting the information from the committees to the city, maybe that's where there needs to be some alteration. Maybe that's where we can do a better job. Is there anything you can think of offhand that might allow for things to work more smoothly or more constructively? Um, Well, I mean, I think one of the things that uh, we have questioned is what happens to the reports that come uh, from the advisory committees to committee and what, you know, what is the mechanism and how do we know that any action has been taken on the advice provided. So that would be one way to sort of assess whether uh, the advice of the committees are being listened to. Um, and uh, I think the other thing that uh, we have talked about is, uh, you know, looking at how the, the process in which people are recruited to sit on these committees and making sure that you are getting, uh, you're removing barriers uh, in terms of hearing diverse voices, being able to uh, participate in this, in, the, in the process of advisory committees. We're looking at advisory committees and how they operate and what sorts of things the city can gain from having them. With Darcy Lacey, who's the Director of Equity, Inclusion and Governance at Pillar Nonprofit, Darcy, in terms of getting onto an advisory committee, I mean, I think you could ask many Londoners, how would you do it? And we might not have an answer. Is that something that maybe we need to promote a little bit better? Would that, is, would that help or, or would you look at something else? Well, I think promoting definitely is one. Uh, I think the actual process as to sort of who knows about these committees. Uh, I think even, you know, we've made that there's been recommendations in the past in terms of, you know, what what time these committees meet. So who does it, you know, who can sit on committees if, uh, you know, if they have an employer that um, won't let them skip out for a noon hour meeting. Um, um, and looking at things like uh, childcare provision so that people are not, if they have the meetings in the evening, that they are able to uh, remove, those kinds of barriers are removed so that everybody can participate. And that's an excellent point. I mean, it may very well be that people are looking at their lives and saying, you know, I, I don't know how much time I have, and I'm not sure that, that I could fit 
my schedule in and around what the schedule is to be on a committee, even though they might like to be on that, because we are looking at these as being volunteer, right? Exactly. And so I, I don't think the question is whether people are not interested. It's more in terms of people uh, knowing that they exist and, you know, uh, how what what the ask is, and then being able to be accommodated so that they can participate. So find out where the reports are going and how they are being used. Make these more accessible to more people, and we may wind up with more great ideas. Anything else that you'd like to see change in all of this? Um, no, I think that's it. So, I mean, I, I mean, I, I think as we started this conversation, really, uh, it's it's uh, really about looking at keeping sort of citizen engagement as part of the structure uh, within the system, which I think advisory committees do. I don't. I, the other proposals around citizen engagement, citizen engagement is always good, uh, but I would consider them to be in addition to, rather than instead of. Darcy, thank you so much for your thoughts today. Really appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you for asking. Uh, Darcy Lacey, Director of Equity, Inclusion, and Governance at Pillar. So in a game of tennis, we're going to talk more about tennis later on. We've got to talk about Novak Djokovic and how other sports need to actually be more like tennis. They really do. So that's coming up later. But in the game of tennis, where we follow the bouncing ball and see what court it is in, we talked to some city officials, some city councillors, as to what they saw in terms of the challenges. Now we've talked with someone saying, well, here, we still need the voices of people. And as much as you can have public participation meetings and invite everybody to come, at the same time, the city's played around with how to do that. Do you do them virtually? Does that increase the participation? The biggest participation meeting we had, if you go back, was when we looked at, at how things were going with Uber coming in, right? Remember that? And so we've, we've, we've had big ones, but at the same time, you need those voices in the community. So how does that report get put together? Where are those reports going? How much time is that taking up? Could we have reports that are far more point form? Maybe that's it. You know, if somebody's taking a long time to write up a six-page report, does that get read? Here's an example I will use in dealing with things from the sports community. There are all kinds of times where I will have conversations with anyone who will take the time to send through information about whatever their sport or their organization has had happen. And there's one in particular that I can think of that would send through five pages of results from people who would range from the youngest of ages up to adults. And this would come in every week. And their concern was that it really wasn't being used. And yet, when you look at it, you would say, I would love to be able to use this, but I can't sit here and read five pages of results on the radio and have it make an impact. What we need is this to be kind of broken down into, here, look, this 12-year-old did this on the weekend, and it's never been done before. They, they finished third, or they finished second, or this person won a championship. There has to be more of a hook than, here are the results, you figure it out. 
And I wonder if that's what the city is getting in some ways from a lot of these advisory committees, where it's, here's a whole bunch of stuff, and now you deal with it. So how do we take it from that and turn it into something useful? It's like getting a whole bunch of celery and a whole bunch of lettuce and being told to make a salad. You've got to get out the knife. You, you, can't, you, you can't just drop the celery and the lettuce into a bowl and go, hey, everybody, salad's ready. Come on, bring a hatchet and a fork because you're going to need it because I just dropped the stuff in a bowl. No, you, you've got to pare it down. You, you've got to make it look nice. You've got to make it appealing. And is that being done? So that's the question that's now on the table, and that's one we'll try and get an answer to this week. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.